0: Welcome to So You Want to Be a Copywriter, brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses. Your host is Bernadette Schwert, who you'll find at copyschool.com, and you can find out more about all our copywriting courses at copywritingcourses.com.au. Now, over to Bernadette. Anxiety. We all have it, or elements of it, but some of us have it more than others. Writers, it would seem, have more of it than most. In this revealing podcast, Carrie Sackville, one of Australia's most prominent columnists and popular writers, discusses her writing life, and in particular, her unique relationship to, and with, anxiety. How it helps her, how it hinders her, and why it's the creative force that underpins much of her work. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert. I'm the founder of the Australian School of Copywriting and the head copywriting tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre. If you'd like to find a process that takes the angst and anxiety out of writing, and in particular copywriting, you need to know about our copywriting courses. Why reinvent the wheel for how to write when we can show you a process that already exists? Here's the thing, a short course can make a big impact. Here's a review from Sandy, who recently completed one of our courses. I finished the course and needed to find work. Within a few weeks of finishing, I had my first paid copywriting gig with a leading SEO agency. I couldn't believe how quickly it happened. My first job paid for the copywriting course in full. Without that course, I would never have had the confidence to put myself forward for that job or the skill to deliver on the brief I was given. Thank you, Bernadette, for opening up this new career option for me. Well, well done you, Sandy. Now, to find out more about our courses, you can visit writerscentre.com.au forward slash essentials or copyschool.com. And if you like our podcasts, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. Harry Sackville, welcome to my podcast.
1: It's so good to be here.
0: And Kerry, I have to be honest, every Sunday I open up the paper and I go to the Sunday magazine and when you are there, I'm like, yes, I have a little like internal dance because I just love your articles and I love your honesty and refreshing take on life and you say the things that a lot of us are feeling but don't actually say so that is
1: so nice thank
0: you that is a genuine um response because I love your articles and I've loved all the content that you've provided over the years and you are prolific so I want to start with a couple of key or fun facts about you that maybe people don't know which I certainly didn't but firstly you came runner-up to Nicole Kidman for the lead role in BMX Bandits.
1: I did. I did. That was in my acting days and I, yeah, got all the way to the last auditions and um, I missed out by one. So, Do you, know, you ever reflect called...
0: on what might have been?
1: I do, a lot actually. First of all, I think that if she hadn't existed, I would probably be divorced from Tom Cruise right now. <laughs> um, but I actually really did pursue an acting career for a while and I, I had um a couple of jobs I had one of the leads in an eight-part miniseries for the ABC when I was I turned 16 when I was doing it and I really was considering acting as a career um, but I realized at the time that I wasn't kind of committed to doing regional theatre and and honing my craft I think I just wanted to be famous <laughs> so that probably wasn't the the like best motivation for such look, a hard you, career you So wouldn't I'd be alone
0: in having that motivation let's face it and look here's a question if you could be married to either Tom or Keith who would it have been um
1: oh god definitely not Tom because he's he's you know a, a bit wacko but Keith doesn't do it for me either isn't that awful no probably wasn't you she have um wasn't she dating that Marcus actor back in in the day
0: oh Marcus Um, Graham yes I really liked him I'd I'd go okay you'll pick him him. okay yeah I'll pick Marcus Graham yeah yeah excellent okay second fun fact about Kerry um you originally trained and worked as a social worker I did what's that what was that about so I
1: started off at uni I'd always been really good at English and loved writing and I started off at uni doing a degree in English and linguistics so doing a BA And loved it. And I got to the end of second year and just had a major freak out and decided that it wasn't vocational enough and that I needed something, you know, really vocational. Um, So I transferred to social work and I ended up doing social work and I worked as a social worker for three years. And then I moved into other areas. I was doing human resources and recruitment. Um, but then when my son was born, so my first child was born in 1999, and I thought I was going to be a stay-at-home mum and, and, you know, just be with him for a while. And when he was five months old, I went back to uni and I finished, um, I finished my BA in English and linguistics. And I absolutely loved it. And it was after that that I started writing.
0: Wow and we will talk more about that. (laughs) Um, And and in a segue, you say you never read the comments on your articles, which I find interesting. Um, I bet you get a few too. Why don't you? I read the comments
1: on my social media. So when I post something on my social media, um, on my Facebook or Instagram, I'll read those comments because they're people who follow me or who come and find me and are are generally, you know, polite and um, usually really supportive. But on the um, the Facebook pages of, you know, whichever publication, I, you know, I'm writing for usually Herald Age, um, the people are feral and, um, and on, you know, on their websites, on the Facebook pages. And what I have found, I mean, there are people who leave supportive comments, but what I've found is that for the most part people aren't motivated to log into a website and um, go to a particular article and leave a comment unless they have something nasty to say. They genu- generally don't um, bother logging in to say, wow, great article, <laughs> you know. Um, and also people just behave really badly online and I don't need that. I write as well as I possibly can. I write what I believe. Um, I try and, and um, you know, entertain people or persuade them or do, do whatever I'm doing in the piece. But I don't need to read nasty comments and I can't filter them out. So I just choose to look away and often i'll get people you know messaging me saying oh my god you you know you got 362 comments and and i'm like great thank you but please don't tell me about the negative ones
0: yeah yeah it's it's challenging as as an actor and i was an actor too um you know that if you're going to read the, the the good ones you've got to read the bad ones or don't read them exactly. all exactly yeah know, right? so you yeah. can you can pick and choose what you take yeah. um how did you get started as a writer Kerry you've been doing it a long time and as I said you've written so many books and so many articles you are a font of um, creativity and and we'll talk more about how you decide which ideas you run with but let's talk about how you actually got started you talked about the degree and you loved it but what what were your first few jobs that led you into the writing life?
1: Ah, Okay so it started after so I had my son in 99 then two years later I had my um, second child. And after she was born, um, I, I can't remember if she was a few months old. I don't know if you recall, but there was a column space on the back of the Herald and the Age called Heckler, which was 750 words, which is a really good space for a column. And it was open to the public. It was open for public submissions. And every day they would just pub- publish, you know, someone um, who'd you know sent through an unsolicited column. And I sent off a piece to Heckler. Um, just, uh, you know, I hadn't, I think i have been working, doing a little bit of part-time recruitment work, but I had never done any professional writing. I'd done a lot of writing for the businesses that I worked for. I would always take over and write their policy manual or their their publicity documents. And I sent off a column to Heckler entitled Sleep is the New Sex. Um, And it was about how new parents crave sleep like, you know, we used to crave sex. And it did really well and the heckler editor was really happy and loved it and i sent a few more and i ended up i can't remember exactly how many i had published whether it was a dozen or, or more but i became the most published heckler um author and it was unpaid it was all for free and my career sort of started taking off and i i um, started doing some work for a couple of small community magazines and um, and parenting magazines and then in 2007, um, just uh, three weeks before my third child was born, my sister died and I stopped writing altogether and I didn't write for 18 months and I honestly thought that I would never write again and I started writing a book and I let that go and I let my columns go and and as I said, very small columns and small publications. And then when she was about 18 months, I read about this new social media site called Twitter that had launched. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I went on Twitter literally to check it out and to follow some famous people. And I started tweeting and people seemed to like my tweets and they asked me if I had a blog. And I was like, what's a blog? Um, but I started blogging and that's how I got my mojo back. And then Mia Friedman, who at the time had just started Mamma Mia, noticed my blog, loved my stuff asked if I'd write for Mamma Mia, I ended up writing for Mamma Mia for a couple of years, all this, you know, unpaid. Um, And then from there, I started sending off pieces here and there, and I ended up getting regular gigs and getting work published, all kind of sending things in on spec. And all I'd ever wanted to do was write for Sunday Life magazine. That to me was the holy grail. And after writing for the Herald, you know, just on a casual basis for years, I was asked if I would like to be one of the columnists for Sunday Life, and that was honestly like the highlight of my career and still is. Um, oh, and I wrote some books as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, a I also wrote some books. Um, look, but that's that, how I got into column column writing. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I, I can imagine that, that that gig was a highlight because it is a privileged space, isn't it, because it's the first thing people turn to in that particular magazine. And it enables you to share your thoughts and your insights. And just on that, and I know you probably get asked this a lot, but I am genuinely interested, how do you come up with your ideas and how do you know which one to run with? Because you've got got to, you know, decide out out of all these ideas, which ones do you pick?
1: Um, Oh, when you say all these ideas, there there are times when I have a lot of ideas um, and there are times when I'm absolutely convinced that the well has run dry and I will never have another idea ever again. And I feel that a lot. Um, And then ideas inevitably come. And they come, I mean, you know, it's like when you're a creative, they come at the oddest times. So I can sit and pace and try and think and generally I will be walking through Westfield, which is like my spiritual home. Um, You know, working from home, I don't see people so I like to go and surround myself with people walking through Westfield. Um, Or I'll be going for a walk or I'll be in the shower or I'll be in the car and suddenly an idea will come to me. Um, but I also spend a lot of time combing through new sites just to try and get ideas, like to to see if I have um, kind of a springboard for an idea for an opinion piece or or like a lifestyle piece, um, and even you know reading novels or talking to people or hearing their stories, something would just spark. I think I think. Th- a lot of people say to me, oh, you've got such an interesting life because I write about all these weird, funny things that happen to me. But I don't. I have no more interesting life than anyone. In fact, I think my life is is often quite dull. But I think the key is to notice the things. So to notice the little events. So I wrote something that did really well recently, which was um, I'd read that, that um, some couple was like talking about um, that they slept on different sides of the bed every night. And that to me was just wild. And, and so I wrote a whole piece about how you sleep on one side of the bed. And it's a nothing. Like it's just a, a little tiny idea, but it's the ability to take that tiny idea and, and build something from it. Like to notice the little interactions or, or, you know, the funny little things that we do or the weird thoughts that we have and, and be able to write about that. And to have opinions, of course. Like you've yes. got to be opinionated.
0: Yes, I think well, yeah. Seinfeld is someone who does it exceptionally well. It's the yes. hyper observant, you know, which yeah. is what his shows are all about. which is, I think what you do really well. Let's um, talk about opinions because um, putting yourself out there obviously is—it's a, a dangerous game in some respects. <laughs> How do you? protect yourself mentally and we'll talk more about anxiety and writing in a moment but how do you 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 know you're putting something out there that's going to get a reaction how do you steady yourself or center yourself when you know that's going out there
1: that's a that's a really good question and I think the key for me is to make sure that I'm really really sure about what I'm writing and that is something that has um, developed over a period of time and there were times in the past because You know, when you write for a publication regularly, whichever publication it is, there are times when the editor will come to you. It happens actually quite a lot. And the editor will say, this has just happened. You know, did you see this story? Um, Do you have anything to say about it? And there were times in the past earlier on where I would not want to turn down any work, and it's always such a privilege to get an idea from an editor um, instead of having to come up with it yourself, that I would say, oh, yes, and I would try and like come up with an angle or think of something. And there were a couple of times when I wrote pieces that I really didn't stand behind 100%. I was writing because, you know, I wanted to have a, like this opinion piece. It didn't happen a lot, but it did happen once or twice. One notable occasion um, where I wrote something that was quite ill-advised about a subject I really didn't know much about. This was This was, you know, many, many years ago. And then what happens is when people criticise you and you know that you've actually messed up, like you know that your your argument wasn't really rock solid and and you weren't really sure or you were a bit mean or you were a bit um, I don't know like like there were holes in your argument then it really is hard and and you know I berated myself afterwards and and felt really stupid and when people are saying you know pulling holes in your pull, pulling holes apart in your argument and and you know that they're right it, it feels awful so I guess. What I do is is more proactive now. I do not write anything unless I am really really sure that I believe it, and I am very good now at anticipating the opposing argument, um, so I can anticipate what people are going to say. Um, and also, I was brought up with my, my dad is is was a lawyer and. Um, than a judge. I'm very, very good at like knowing how to argue and and anticipating how people are going to debate with me. So I kind of embed the opposing argument into the body of the piece, whatever it is, whether it's a fun, fluffy lifestyle piece, whether it's a serious opinion piece. Um, And so that tends to ward off a lot of criticism when you've got, like people can disagree with your thesis, but your thesis has to be really solid. And if I'm not sure about it, then I will just not write um so I guess that's yeah that's how I do it
0: yeah I often am amazed at the cogency of your arguments and I wonder how long it took you to put that together because I find that simple arguments take a long time to put together (laughs) the crystallization of an idea and and you are putting it out publicly again this is probably how long is a piece of string but from how long would it take you to write say a 700 word article for the Sunday age so
1: It depends but usually pretty quickly these days because most of the work is done in my head beforehand like i'm figuring out what i'm thinking and so by the time i come to write it very often it comes out really quickly in one go it can be like you know 40 minutes and it's done but then i kind of tweak it and and you know tidy it up and and move things around but generally i've been doing this for a long time and and, you know, I do a very limited sort of thing. like do like one thing um, really well. And so it usually comes out in one go. Um, I'm just good at, at making the argument and, as I said, embedding the opposing argument in it. Sometimes it takes a little, much longer time. And when that happens, it's usually because either it wasn't a good idea to start with or I actually don't really know what I'm saying. And if it doesn't come out quickly, then I sit down and and I'm thinking, what is going on here? And I said, usually I am not 100% sure about my thesis. Like I'm trying to either make a bigger argument out of something that really isn't enough or I've just kind of made an error in my logic. And there are times when I'll just like say, right, this isn't working. So if it doesn't come out quickly, usually it's because it's actually not a great idea or I have to rethink the whole thing. And sometimes, sometimes I'll actually have pitched an idea to my editor and said, I want to write an opinion piece. And this is, you know, you always have to give like a line or two about what the thesis is. And then I'll write it and it'll turn out completely different. I'll find in the writing that I, I was wrong. Like that's actually not what I think. And, and I submit it and it's like, you know, I'm filing it and, and saying, sorry, this has actually turned out different. Um, and usually that's, that's fine. Uh, but you often don't really know until you start to write it and you come to this block and say, like, oh, God, okay, yeah, I, I was wrong.
0: And how much lead time do you generally have? Do you know that you're going to be writing an article at the next date so you've got X number of weeks to prepare? No, so
1: Sunday Life um, I'm asked to, you know, I'm asked to to, um, file a piece every few weeks usually, but sometimes um, the editor will message and say, look, someone's dropped out of this slot, can you write one up quickly and I'll do it in, in, you know, a couple of days. for opinion pieces um, for the, um yeah, for the opinion section, it can literally be pitching an idea that's, that's based around the news cycle um, and filing it within, you know, a few hours. Um, so, you know, they, like obviously the way that the papers work is that they, they run around stories that are, that are current and you can see, you know, something um, that's hit the front page. If you want an opinion piece about it, you've got to get it in really quickly, like literally in a few hours, um, sometimes less amazing Um, and I yeah yeah, and and I'm I'm good at that and I actually didn't realize um for quite a while my career that not everybody does that so I would pitch an idea and have it in that afternoon and find out that oh no people actually can take you know a couple of weeks to get things in and and by then it's just not current anymore so um everything's changed now obviously with with you know the online world you just it's just bam 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 and and um you know in three days it's completely irrelevant
0: Mm, yes and Kerry, you have written many books and you've got a, a, a really strong brand. And I, I'm curious, the people listening who maybe haven't progressed as, as far or in the early stages of their careers but would like to emulate something that, that you've done, a mix of you know, articles, and I know you did the copywriting course and you know, you've know, yes. you got a really wide um, genre that you can draw from. What kind of tips would you give people who are looking to build their brand you know, who don't have a profile yet?
1: Yeah. Um, I think what, what I've always tried to do, I mean, people talk about finding your voice and using your voice. And I, I guess there's two things I would say about that one for me, and this is my particular brand, but, um, I, I couldn't keep up a kind of literary persona. It's just, it would be too much effort for me. So I write the way that I speak. Um, and, um, So that's how I found my voice is literally just writing the way I would pretty much have a conversation. And often I do that literally. So I will sometimes get an idea for a a column or know that I've I've got a column to write and go for a walk and literally dictate it into my phone. Um, So I think that's a really good way of finding your voice is actually if you're stuck speaking your idea to somebody else, speaking it into your phone, right. I do a lot of journaling. I've journaled my whole life. So I you know, I, I had the same style that I, you know, if you saw my journals, it's all, you know, the kind of writing that, that um, appears in my work, except, you know, I tend to repeat myself a lot more in my journals over and over again, the same old issues. Um, and I think the other thing is that what I have always tried to do with my books and my columns is write what I am interested in reading. Now, there's occasional exception if I have been, like I was commissioned, one of my books I was commissioned to write, it wasn't my idea. Um so, um, and that was a book on mess, which I really enjoyed writing, but that was an idea that was brought to me. Um, I think that's probably the first time I've said that on a podcast because <laughs> you know, they ask you the genesis of it. It's like, well, this is how I came up with it. But in fact, it was an idea that was brought to me. Um, and I, I mean, I came up with the idea for the book and, and the whole theme of it and thesis, but I was asked to write, you know, a book in response to the whole Mari Kondo movement. But all the other books... Uh, books that I wrote at a time in my life where I wish I had had that to read. So my first book was on marriage and motherhood, a funny um, look at the realities of marriage and motherhood, which wasn't around at the time. So I wrote that. Then I wrote The Little Book of Anxiety because I wanted someone to write humorously and truthfully about the experience of anxiety rather than like an academic um, kind of reflection on anxiety. And then I wrote my dating book, so Dating in Midlife because there wasn't a manual for Dating in Midlife. Um, and then I wrote, you know, my recent book on on the importance of solitude because I had, you know, made all these um, discoveries and revelations and and there was, you know, nothing that, that kind of met that need. So I think if you write what you are interested in reading, you will always be true to yourself and that way you can kind of build your brand. So whether that's, you know, if you like reading rom-coms or if you like reading historical fiction or you like reading gritty memoir, you know, just write what you are interested in reading.
0: Mm and let's talk about a couple of those books firstly the the little bit of anxiety which it was unbelievably refreshing you know um it was written a few years ago now yeah it was 2012 but yeah it was um, yeah. and we we talked to Line a second ago but yeah, anxiety is still a, a very present yeah re- reality for you And um, i'd love to talk more about that because i think a lot of writers um, suffer from I don't even know the word suffer is the right word but experience anxiety oh and, it's
1: suffer yeah yeah if you can choose yeah. to have
0: anxiety or not would you have it um, what what do you recommend to people who have anxiety how have you dealt with that and what kind of tips would you give and, and are there any benefits to anxiety I mean there's a whole bunch of questions in there oh. but let's pick one are there any benefits to anxiety
1: I uh, you know, people will say it gives you drive and, and I, I honestly, if I could remove all anxiety from my life, I would. I I don't feel like it's been a great friend to me. I, I feel like it's something that I have had to work really, really, really hard to manage. Um, I mean, yes, I can see that anxiety does you, you know, being anxious to prove yourself or being anxious to succeed or being anxious to um be productive, you know, I can see can can drive you, but For me, when I get anxious, it actually makes it much harder to write. Um, Anxiety for me often manifests with quite a cloudy mind. And there have been times, you know, in terms of writing anxiety, if I've got a deadline, and as I said, usually it goes well and usually I'm writing and, and, you know, it's all coming out and it's great. But on those occasions where, you know, say I've set off file by 2 p.m. and it's like 12.30 and I realized, oh God, this isn't working. And I get anxious and my heart starts to race and everything goes cloudy and it's really hard to write. Um, So I write much better with a kind of clear, calm mind. Um, But for me, in terms of dealing with it, therapy, I mean, you know, I, I had a great cognitive behavioral therapist and I got to the point where I could almost like feel her on my shoulder and talking me through when I was becoming anxious Um, journaling has always been incredibly helpful for me and I do it all the time. I have a journaling app on my phone, um, which I love. I think it's called day one. It's free. Um, I, um, you know, have journals. I have um, paper journals. I have journals on my laptop. And, you know, for me writing things down, particularly when I wake up in the middle of the night and the thoughts are racing is just a great way to get them out of my head once you kind of commit them to the page or the screen, it really helps to clear your mind. And I exercise a lot. I don't, I don't go to the gym. I don't do yoga or anything like that, but I walk a lot. And my partner now will say to me, you know, if I speak to him in the, you know, in the afternoon, I'm anxious about something, he'll say, go, go for another walk. And he's right. Like, you know, we, and the more anxious I am, the more, um, the, the faster I walk and the longer I walk. And that really, really helps. You cannot, um, overestimate the importance of exercise um, for mental health. And that, that's why I do it.
0: Mm. And in terms of the, the, the writing life, do you think writers are attracted to writing or do you think anxiety is a feature of the writing life? Is is it connected, do you think?
1: Yeah, well, I think think writers, um, we're introspective and we're very interested in the inner world. I mean, we're interested in our own inner worlds and we're interested in other people's inner worlds, like, um, you know, what makes people tick and why do people do the things they do? And when you're introspective, I think that almost always comes with – maybe not when you are self-aware and when you're aware of other people and when you're aware of the world and you're noticing things I mean in the kind of world that we live in that comes with anxiety because this world is really complex and there's a lot going on and I think the more alert and awake you are probably the more anxious you're, you're going to be and the more introspective you are the more tendency you'll have um for anxiety so I do and and I think every writer I've met is, is anxious <laughs> in some way. I mean, maybe look, I, I met once somebody who wrote, um, who wrote erotic fiction under a pseudonym and she seemed fairly laid back. But for the most part, certainly anyone who writes personal reflections or novels about relationships or, you know, about human connection, it, we're all anxious. We're all anxious. <laughs>
0: Uh, your new book is really interesting too, The Secret Life of You, um, and it's about loneliness. Um, what what was the germ of that idea? Well, it's when- not
1: about loneliness. Um, it's People tend to assume it's about loneliness. It's not. It's about the importance of alone time. Um, and solitude, um, which is what I write about in the book, is actually the opposite of loneliness. So loneliness is that feeling of being um, desperate for more connection than you have. Um, and solitude is the experience of actually being connected with yourself while you are alone. Um, and I wrote it, I started to write it um, during lockdown and what I found was um, that I um, w- was really, really struggling. I was struggling with um I guess, being um, disconnected from people but at the same time being around my kids all the time. So I had this weird situation of being locked down with three kids and never being alone but also not having the kind of connection that I usually had. And I had very little work. Um, You know, the media kind of was crashing and burning. Um, I was having health problems. And what I um, found myself doing was spending hours and hours and hours on my phone, like literally just scrolling through social media endlessly and it was making me more agitated and more anxious and feeling more disconnected. And I realised that I needed to do something different because I wasn't in a good headspace and I decided to just put down my phone and try and sit with my thoughts and just be with myself and learn to become a friend to myself like I would become a friend to other people. And, you know, I'm now, I just turned 55, which is really old. And when I was growing up, solitude was just part of daily life. I mean, I, you know, when if I was in my bedroom, I think I didn't even get a clock radio, I think, until I was about 12 or 13, maybe later. I certainly didn't have a television, certainly didn't have a telephone. So when I was in my room, in my bedroom, I was alone with my thoughts. If I was sitting on the bus, if I was walking to school, if I was you know, in a waiting room, I'd be alone with my thoughts. That was just a normal part of life. And we have lost that. Um, and because of social media and because of smartphones and because of um, the internet and Wi-Fi and everything else, most of us don't ever have to be alone with our thoughts, so we very rarely are. And and alone time has almost become this problem to be solved um, by turning to our phone. It's incredible how reflexively we do it. And I did a deep dive into the kind of the effects of that on our brains and on our well-being, and it's huge. I mean, not being able to spend meaningful time alone has an impact on our relationships on our emotional well-being on our creativity um, on the development of our um, moral courage so on the development of, of just um our um moral center and how we make make decisions um and it also kind of minimizes our life because if we race through life and never actually get to know the one person who's going to be with us forever um it's an incredible waste. um so I I learned to actually be alone again, um, and and it really did change my life. And and the book came out of that. It's a beautiful. very long answer to a short question. No,
0: it's, <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful topic, and uh, and you treat it really delicately as well. What what are the some of the tips that you would recommend for dealing with uh, to become more comfortable with being alone when you're
1: solitary? so? There's a lot in the book, but um, what I want to stress is that I'm not. Um, encouraging people or, or suggesting that people take themselves off, like to a five day silent retreat, or, or, you know, go and live alone if you if you don't want to do that, or travel alone if you're not interested. Um, I've done all of those things, but well, actually I haven't done a silent retreat, but I have taken myself off um, for a very isolated holiday. Um, But what I'm suggesting people do is just to take more incidental moments of alone time during the day. So the kind of moments that we used to have and the kind of moments that our brain needs, like we all need time during the day to power down. We are not designed to be having stimulation round the clock. Um, It's really bad for us. So audit your social media is a start, but catch yourself in all those moments when you pick up the phone. Um, So, for example, when you go out for a walk, Try either not taking your phone with you. I always take my phone with me because I use it as a step counter. <laughs> so, and I like to count my steps. Um, but I, you know, I'll put it in my in my pocket, and I won't listen to a podcast or or um, you know music or whatever for a period of my walk. Always. Um, when I'm driving my car, I'll generally turn the radio off and just have a silent drive. Um, I mean, my 15-year-old daughter will take a phone with her into the shower and like play music or a video, you know, while she's showering, like shower with no, you know, just in silence. Um, just use those incidental moments to to turn inward instead of outward. And it really does make a huge difference.
0: Yes, I can't agree more. Um, I noticed too, you know, when you're at the airport, for example, and, and there's a moment to what, where you're distracted, the first thing people do is just grab their phone. You know they have Always. to wait for a second. The first yeah. thing is the phone, and I think this new generation or the younger generations that the children you're referring to, um, and I've one in that same boat. Yeah. What kind of future do you think this is creating for those young people?
1: I'm in, I'm incredibly worried, and I feel really powerless um, because I, I see a whole generation who are really. Um, unable to be alone with their thoughts. And as I said, one of the really important things is the, the development of a moral center. And we need to be able to turn inwards and reflect on our actions and what we believe about things. The kind of stuff that I do when I'm writing an opinion piece is I really think about what do I believe? What is right? You know, It gets you in touch with, with your own um, sense of morality and right and wrong. And when kids never have that downtime, when they're constantly consuming content from other people instead of um doing any sort of reflection, they're missing out on that. And yeah, you know, there's been research to show that that um the less time spent in reflection, the more likely you are to to, or, or it's a contributing factor to people who subscribe to conspiracy theories or or you know um far-right extremism. Like we need people to reflect in order to develop that moral code. Um and then the other thing of course is creativity. You know, when I was researching the book, a lot of um very, very smart people, smarter than, than me, you know, people in, in tech and, and industry and business, um, people like Bill Gates and and um inventors saying things like they could not have developed their products or um their research findings in this kind of climate because the workforce doesn't encourage reflection and contemplation. Everything is about. Yeah, you know, group work and open plan offices, and there's no time just to to be alone with your thoughts, um, and then just for attention spans, you know, I can see that the difference that it has. I can see because I've got um, my eldest is 24, and then I've got a 22 year old, and then I've got a 15 year old, and the difference between the way that my two adult kids use social media and my youngest does, because my my adult kids had some time without social media; they had they grew up for a while without smartphones, whereas my 15 year old has been exposed to it her whole life. Um, and they are much better at putting down their phones. You know, this generation of, of um, kids really finds it very difficult to do that. Um, and um, I, I think it's it's changing our brains. And it's not necessarily something we can stop, but I think it's something that we need to be aware of. Um, and as parents, you know, I, I regret how how early I gave my youngest um, access to devices the one bit of advice I would I would give to parents is just to hold off as long as you possibly can you know when I see babies being pushed in strollers um, kind of looking at iPads you know it's it's a little bit heartbreaking because then then they are not learning to entertain themselves babies are naturally pretty good at it you know you see your baby like lying on the ground playing with their toes like they're using their imaginations you give them a rattle and they wave it around like you I you know, they actually can learn to be alone with their thoughts if we allow them to be, but by constantly putting devices in their hands, we're robbing them of those skills and it's going to impact on the rest of their lives. I don't like to sound preachy because I, I really do understand. I did it myself. Yeah. Like I didn't know better. And parents are just desperate to get a break. And they're very they're great tools for for babysitting. And you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. And sometimes we we really need to just, you know have some space and go and have a shower or do the cooking or whatever and put our kids in front of the TV or a computer or whatever. But but when there's a choice, when, you know, you can actually have them sitting up at the table playing with crayons or in their pram like looking around or playing with a toy, that's the better option.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a tricky time, isn't it, because it's it's very difficult to hold the line when the world around them is, uh, they're all partaking in it. And so moving forward with your book, Kerry, um, and I know there are people out there who have written books as well, What and this sort of a different sort of slant, but what kind of um, promotional techniques do you use to get your book out? Is that something oh that occupies God. you? Do you like it? Yeah, or do you think you just oh wish you could just go out there and...
1: I hate it so much. And I think a lot of authors do. Maybe, maybe not the younger authors coming through now who are like TikTok natives, um, but for people like me and my generation, it is so hard. And, and I feel, you know, I feel sort of a bit ironic saying that because I got my start on Twitter. You know, that's how I, I kind of grew my audience and I started to blog and I got noticed via Twitter and that worked really, really well for me. Um, and I started blogging at a time when it was quite new and I um, it was much easier kind of to get noticed. And I find it really hard to negotiate Social media now—it's—I've um, never been great at Instagram. I was decent at—I was good at Twitter. I was decent at Facebook. I've never been great at Instagram. It's a visual medium. It's—it's it's, you know, I never really grew a huge audience on Instagram, and I've never even like TikTok is just beyond me. I know I sound—I'm not actually a boomer, I'm Gen X, but I sound really boomerish saying that. But you've also got to understand what your space is, and what I've what I've realized about social media now. With TikTok and with you know the kind of way that that social media is, is a lot of it is actually out of the author's control, and you know I'm not a novelist, so I think it's it's probably worse for novelists. Um, but there seems to it seems to be so random what books kind of get picked up and do really well and start doing well on BookTok, and I have seen books do incredibly well um, that you know a, a decent. They're decent reads, they're okay. Like they're fine, but some books that are really wonderfully written um, just don't get that that same kind of traction for whatever reason. Um, and I, it's really difficult because you can do it, you do everything you can do, and you publicize your book, and you put it on your socials, and you, you you know you do interviews, and you and you send out copies to other people. But so much depends on the one. Um, you know, relevant person loving it and it going a bit viral on their account or if you're, you know, a novelist trying to get, you know, picked up on BookTok, um, you know, just something hits a zeitgeist and it builds on itself and and things do well for seemingly random. Like one book gets picked up and is like anointed as the, you know, the, the book of the week or month or whatever. And I think it is incredibly frustrating for authors to realise how little control they have over the process so I actually know authors who have tried to hack kind of the book talk algorithm um, by writing a book that they feel will you know do really well on book and it doesn't work like it's it's almost unhackable I think it's it's you can't anticipate what people are going to love like at the moment they'll you know they love twisty turny novels with big reveals but sometimes those kind of novels do really well on TikTok and sometimes they don't like um, it's it's frustrating and I guess always been like that like I I suppose it's always been like that but it feels much more um, extreme now because of social media Um, so I guess my answer is I find the publicity trail both um, it's fun in terms of doing interviews about your book and talking to people who are interested who have read it that part's great but the whole idea of trying to make your book a success in an environment where you really do have very little control over the outcome is really tough yeah
0: so in that light Kerry what is your version of success then for you as as an author what what would that look like just based on this last book
1: I'll let you know if I find out (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I mean I've written five books some have done really well um some not as well um for you know, reasons again, beyond my control. Like one, my, my dating book, which is one of my favorite books. I absolutely love it. People, all the response has been absolutely amazing, but the, the publishing house that I, I had been with random house before that, and I went with a different publishing house and they collapsed three weeks before my book was published. So, you know, things like that go wrong in the publishing world. Um, and people were trying to get my book and they just weren't copies in the store. So that book never did as well as I think it should have. And, and, again beyond my control. Some things are in your control. Yeah. Um but I, I guess I've always seen myself as, you know, people say they're a jobbing actor. Like mm-hmm. I, I see myself as a jobbing writer, but I have never felt like um a like I've, I I love being in Sunday life. That it gives me enormous satisfaction. And that feels really good. And I still get a buzz out of it every time I see my my photo in there. Um so that feels really good. I I you know, I'm really happy that I've had my books published, they've been published overseas, that feels really good. But you're always comparing yourself to other people, aren't you? So it, that's just I think, you know, I was speaking to a novelist friend of mine who's really successful, but she was somebody else who's in her kind of genre, had her books just taken off in, in the States and she's like, why wasn't it me? And, and you know, we all feel like that. So we're all comparing ourselves to other people. I've compared myself to, you know, non-fiction writers whose books Kind of, you know, have have done much better than mine, or have been turned into a, you know, in a, into a series or whatever. Um, so I try and be grateful for the success I've had, and I and I do feel grateful, but I'm always thinking, wouldn't it have been nice if? <laughs> and I think that's I think that's natural. Um, as I get older, I um, am doing that lesson and trying to be more satisfied and looking back on my body of work. Um, you know, I know there's a lot there, and I, I've got it all into um, a portfolio. And it, yeah, there's there's a lot there, and I feel really good about that. But do I feel like a huge success? No. But then I don't want to. I, I I you know, for people listening who who are still waiting to get their first piece published, that must sound awful. Like I, you know, I'm I'm very grateful. But there's always something I've learned in life. There's always going to be people who are more or less successful than you. So if I look at people trying to start or if I look at where I was, um, I feel really good about what I've done. If I look at people who have achieved far more than me, I'm like, oh, God, you know, only five books and none of them, you know, a New York Times bestseller, wow. So I try these days to stay in my own lane. But do I walk around going, wow, I'm a great success? No.
0: No. <laughs> I have a friend who um, has just written a book It's unpublished it's 150,000 words and, oh, and, and wow yeah and I and I said to him because it's been one of his life's work you know I said what if yeah. this doesn't get published I said how will that make you feel and will that prevent you or mm-hmm. you know stop you from writing the next one he goes no he said it's just what I do it's who oh, I that's am.
1: wonderful yeah and I'm like yeah.
0: wow you know mm-hmm. I'm I'm really impressed with that that mindset, but the other thing I just throw in too, Kerry, because I know exactly what you're saying. When I'm writing something, and it's taking longer than it's short or whatever, and I I think it's not what I'm doing; it's who I'm becoming. You know, I yeah. often refer to that because I think, okay, this is not giving me exactly what I thought, but who have I become in the yeah. process, and how can I that yeah. to the next thing? Yeah. So it's, um, I think, the comparison thing is really common. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah, and there's yeah. always people above and there's always people below. you yeah. know, it's like yeah, it's up um,
1: I'm non like I write nonfiction, and I tried to write novels, and I was terrible at it. I mean, really genuine. People often say, "Oh, you you thought about writing a novel?" I was really bad at it. So I have so much admiration for people who write novels, for example, and that to me feels like something I I just couldn't do. So I consider somebody who's written a novel, even if it hasn't kind of you know like set the world on fire, somebody's written a novel. I think that is an incredible achievement, um, and something I'm really in awe of. Um, and yeah, I, I think um, comparison is really difficult, but it also, I guess, is is what keeps us, you know, kind of pushing forward. And um, there are some people in in our industry who are incredibly prolific, and and kudos to
0: them. And I think that is a fantastic place to finish our beautiful chat. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, it's been great. With me, it's been really fun. Kerry's reflections on anxiety and writing reminded me of the quote, tears are words that need to be written. And I think her popularity stems from voicing thoughts that many of us grapple with but often can't express or consciously choose not to articulate. And in an era where bravery is essential for writers, this conversation with Kerry highlights the courage required to be a writer. Now, here's a very interesting quote from George Bernard Shaw to finish off with. All great truths begin as blasphemies. Interesting. And a joke to lighten the tone. What's the difference between a writer and a large cheese pizza? The pizza can feed a family of three. And that's it from me. All the best and bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to So You Want To Be A Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au. This podcast was brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do you want to get started as a professional copywriter? Have a look at our course, Copywriting Essentials. Created by Bernadette Schwert, this five-week online course will teach you how to write words that sell and get paid to be creative. Find out more at writercenter.com.au slash copywriting. And thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show
0: notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au.